Happy Monday and welcome to this week's episode of the One Take Wonder podcast with the Hot Weird Girl. I'm the Hot Weird Girl in question, Alexia, and you can find me on every social media platform. That's TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at Hot Weird Girl. If you like my content and you're looking for more long-form content from me, I have three new YouTube videos coming out January 20th. If you're interested in the podcast, new episodes drop every Monday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm so excited to have you guys here. I'm so excited to get into this week's topic. And as always, I just want to give like a brief thank you. Um, You guys voted on this week's topic on Spotify. So today we're going to be talking about Stanley Cups over consumption and climate change. Let's get into it. Y'all will never make me give a fuck about the Stanley Cup thing, some sort of legitimate societal issue. And I hope that by the end of this like 20 to 30 minute episode, you also understand about how the hullabalooa about this is ridiculous. A little bit misogynistic, but mostly just like I don't know a way to describe it other than like auntie hand wringing. Like there are certain topics that as an adult you should remove yourself from, especially if it's being endorsed by the New York Post or the Daily Mail. Like if you find yourself agreeing like a boomer with certain opinions, like people sitting outside of Target for Stanley Cups are ruining America. One, you're just not that smart. But two, like maybe you should take a break. Maybe you should go watch in nature watch in nature walk in nature touch some grass like it is just it's not the issue you think it is and think back maybe this episode will be like a spiritual successor to the lost art of bitching and abusive memes episode that came out a few months ago because really and truly i think this is such a great exit is that a fucking siren i promise you i never hear sirens honking noise in my apartment except for on monday nights when i sit down and hit record and when i'm done recording then i never hear them again it's like i bring all of the fire trucks to the yard just by sitting in front of my little microphone so i apologize i've also lost my train of thought oh yeah like it's just not a real issue okay We're also going to talk about climate change. I feel like it should just be enough to say that you think the cups are ugly and bulky and not worth the price and that you personally wouldn't buy one and that you think it's a little weird that people are creating like dollhouses and different snuggies and, you know, accessories for their tumbler cup. And I'm going to preface this, all of this, by saying that I do not have a Stanley cup. I am a hydro flask girly until I die. Or until realistically I lose my hydrofask and then I can treat myself to buying a Yeti because the Yeti does slightly work better. But I love my hydroflask. I take it with me all the time hiking. It's the hot pink one. And yeah, like I said, the Stanley just wouldn't work for me. It's too bulky. It doesn't fit in cup holders. Like that really bothers me. Also, I'm not a big fan of the flimsy plastic straws because they do grow mold and that's a little gross. And I, it's just not for me but it's not ending the world. And so I think when I talked about the lost art of bitching, I mentioned that some people in an attempt to like intellectualize their hatred will then start pulling in other social um, issues and making whatever they don't like as an example. And I think when it comes to the Stanley Cup, it's definitely turned into a conversation about overconsumption. Now I wanna say this, that overconsumption is a huge problem just because we're in late stage capitalism, just because we're in a capitalist society in general, we are taught to consume at rates that are just abnormal. 
you know, you don't need the amount of stuff that we in the West, particularly those who are like middle class to upper middle class to, especially when you talk about like very wealthy people tend to amass. And especially when you consider that like 80% of the stuff made today is junk. One of my favorite articles, you know what, I'll link that article and something you should read. Oh yeah. And this episode is going to have all of my sources cited, but it's an article in the Atlantic, I believe, and it goes over how clothes today are just so poorly made. They don't even hold up to clothes from like 10 years ago. And I think that's something we all knew, especially if you're big into the thrifting scene. But it's now to the point that like, I don't mind spending coin on clothes, but when I go to purchase something and it's almost $800 and then I see that it's all viscose, I want to, it makes me violent and angry. And like, like this is just garbage, it's just plastic garbage that isn't even going to last till the season. We talk about the fact that she and the devil company won't even last you a few wears, but I've purchased things from like brand name stores that, you know, a couple years ago would have held up and lasted me a couple of years and they don't even make it to whatever national holiday is coming up next. You know how ridiculous it is to purchase something in January and then by the 4th of July, that thing is in tattered shreds? You would think that I'm climbing Mount Everest or putting my clothes through the rigmarole and not going to a very tame nine to five job with some socializing on the weekends. Her valid frustrations of being trapped in this never ending hellscape of consumption. But at the same time, where and how we're applying these criticisms of overconsumption just doesn't make sense. Like you guys will scream, oh my God, that's overconsumption because you saw like 10 influencers. And I just I have to point out that obviously influencers, people who have monetized what started off as like a modest collection of something, then amass hundreds of thousands of followers followers and now make money off of amassing more stuff, have dragon hordes of junk because they monetized it, because it's an incentive for them to keep buying. And you think that the spirit of overconsumption applies to a bitch with five Stanley Cups, right? Like, it's just so, again, boomer coded to see a handful of people doing something over the internet and then make that your representation for how normal people act. Normal people do not have cabinets full of Stanleys. Normal people probably have one, no more than five. And if someone had more than five, you would remember them because it would be so highly unusual. So this idea that people being excited over product drops is some sort of sign of the end times is also ridiculous. And I want to point out how this is tied to misogyny as well. In last week's episode in defense of teenage girls, I talked about the fact that teenage girls are the reflections of the absurdity of misogyny and how all of the things that teenage girls are into are constantly criticized and torn down. And that applies to women as well, because men, men are talking about a GTA game that isn't set to come out for years. Men salivate at the thought of shoe drops. I had friends who all throughout school, elementary school through law school, would skip class, um, not turn in assignments, I mean, I even had a friend in high school skip a test just to get like shoe drops, like Nike, Jordan. Oh my God, I said Nike like European. Jordans, Yeezys. Oh my God, especially when Yeezy was big. Like 15-year-old boys were 
damn near crashing their cars for the opportunity to scroll and try to get a drop. Men will line up around the block for video games. Men will tailgate in a parking lot for their favorite sports team just to show their enthusiasm, just try to be the first one in the stadium. Men will engage in all sort of rituals and community building around a certain product. And nobody is writing like 15,000 think pieces. We just all accept it as like, oh, that's a little weird. And men are kind of stupid. And we pick it up and move on. But a woman does it or women do it. And it's like, can you believe they went to Target at 4.30 a.m.? Did it kill anyone? Is someone paralyzed? Is this something you're even going to remember 30 days from now? Like, it's not that consequential. But then what really blows me is they're trying to tie this into like, this is why the earth is dying. And I'm not sorry for this at all. Y'all will never get me to believe that the individual shoulders the same burden as the corporation when it comes to things like climate change. In fact, as I'm going to explain, and I deeply, deeply encourage you to link, I think there's about six sources. Two of them are peer-reviewed journal articles, and four of them are articles that give a brief overview and summary of the two articles that I'm linking. Although if you have the time, it's just best to read the articles themselves that go over the fact that dating back to the 1970s, when Exxon first became aware of climate change all the way to now, um, these huge corporations that are defiling mother nature, killing our earth, ensuring that our children might not even see snowy winters or warm summers in California because we're wreaking irreparable, ugh, irreparable harm on the planet have poured billions of dollars into the idea that somehow it's our fault, that if every person makes a dietary change, we can reverse the emission of CO2 gases from all the cow farts and not the fact that like BP is just suffocating the little mermaid by dumping gas and oil in the ocean whenever it wants with no government oversight because they own the government. I just said a lot in a short amount of time, and I promise you I'll break it all down, but the idea that the everyday pleasures we consume in are the ultimate contributors to the downfall of the planet is so irresponsible, and it's just the mentality that arises after decades of corporate propaganda. Which is funny because so many of the people who want to make these inferences and try to draw this like non-existent connection will try to do so under the guise of being smart and intelligent. And it's like, mm, real smart girls know when Exxon is just trying to pull the wool over your eyes. So ExxonMobil, the world's largest oil and gas company, which I'll refer to as Exxon, knew about climate change as early as 1977, 11 years before climate change would enter the public conversation and become an issue um, that started to get global awareness from scientists, although it wasn't the first time that scientists became aware that we were seeing a change in temperature and weather patterns on the earth likely caused by humans. I now we know that that's true, but at the time I'm saying likely. And it was actually senior scientist James Black, who in July of 1977 delivered a sobering message on the topic saying, in the first place, there is general scientific agreement that the most likely manner in which mankind is influencing the global climate is through carbon dioxide release of the burning of fossil fuels. James Black delivered this message to Exxon's management company. Then a year later, in 1978, he said the following. He warned that Exxon was 
doubling CO2 gases in the atmosphere that would increase the average global temperature by two or three degrees, a number that is now consistent with the scientific consensus of today. He continued to warn that the present thinking holds that man has a time window of five to 10 years before the need for hard decisions regarding changes in energy strategies might become critical, aka Exxon had to cut the shit or the earth was going to start dying. Now, we all know what Exxon did, right? They started lying like a motherfucker. Actually, Exxon's strategy has been compared to that of the tobacco industry which upon getting early warning that tobacco was contributing to cancer and killing their clients, adopted the strategy of advertising tobacco and cigarettes as safe. You may have in school seen those old school adverts of camel dressed up, like the actual camel from Camel Cigarettes, dressed up in doctor's clothes saying it's totally safe. Oh, this is endorsed by the Surgeon General. In the 1950s in particular, they advertised that doctors prescribed cigarettes for weight loss. They had, you know, soldiers coming back from war endorsing cigarettes as the reason why they survived. All of this was a complete lie and tobacco companies have always known what tobacco was going to do. Rather than face public scrutiny, Exxon began to advance the idea that the science was controversial. In June of 1998, NASA scientist James Hansen told a congressional hearing that the planet was already warming as an initial warning that climate change was imminent and that, again, we had a limited time to act. But Exxon became a leader in the campaigns of confusion. In 1989, it created something called the Global Climate Coalition, which just which was disbanded in 2002, that questioned the scientific basis for concerns about climate change. When you look this organization up, and I encourage you to look this organization up, it's linked in one of the articles that I'm reading from, the Scientific American article specifically. Um, you'll see a lot of the climate denialism in there that's parroted by people today, and they don't even know what they're parroting from. Think back to that episode where I talked about nutritionists being hired by Pepsi and Cola and the diet or I'm sorry, and the sugar industry to tell you that, you know, aspartame was safe for consumption. Using people that the public trusted in order to advance this message that we don't really know if the planet's heating up entrenched generations of people in this ideology that we're still currently fighting against. One thing that's really important to know is that culture adapts to environment. And if the environment is created to question science and scientific data and the proof that's in front of us, then the culture adapts to that. Even the fact that climate deniers are platformed as someone to actually engage with and not people that need to be beat over the head with the baseball bat gives legitimacy to their message, which we know is scientifically false and which every day contributes to humans and the planet's demise. In 2024, experts are still piecing together um, all the steps that Exxon took for their misconception. But one thing that we do know, besides all of the damage that they contributed, is that Exxon set out on a campaign to convince people that individuals were just as culpable for the damage to the earth as they were. Quote, one of our overall findings is that ExxonMobil has used rhetoric mimicking the tobacco industry to downplay the reality and seriousness of climate change and to shift responsibility for climate change away from itself and unto consumers, unquote, from Jeffrey Sopran, co-author of 
the paper that I'm citing from and research fellow at author. And this paper was an analysis of ExxonMobil Corporation's um, use of language to systemically shift blame for climate change away from fossil fuel companies and onto consumers. And it's really, really important to talk about the language that they used. Public communications department of ExxonMobil sought to deflect responsibility for climate change away from the oil giant and onto individual consumers who heated their homes and filled their cars with gas or who took airplanes or who didn't cut back on meat. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, because it's part of this greenwashing effect. It paints these giant corporations as victims to climate change in the same way we are. It allows us to hem and haw about the time that we didn't throw our paper away in the recycling and instead threw it in the trash, and to distract us from the reality that it would take the effort of billions, billions of individuals on this planet to offset what the oil companies are doing to the planet. That is a frightening thought, but even more frightening that people have bought into it. You see people chastising each other and moralizing things like Stanley Cups because you're contributing to overconsumption, you're killing the planet. In reality, when this earth overheats and we all, you know, asphyxiate because we can't get enough oxygen because we fucking shattered our ozone due to all the CO2 farts emitted by cows, it's not going to be because you shopped at so-and-so and you're not going to be spared from this fate because you're the type of person who thrifts instead of buying new we are all going to collectively suffer something that very interestingly the men who run these organizations think they can escape i always think about mark zuckerberg and other tech billionaires building out these like high-tech apocalypse hideouts where they intend to brave out things like the ocean swallowing California and, you know, cataclysmic wildfires. And what always makes me laugh is that in order to keep those compounds running, you need staff. But how are you going to incentivize the staff to work for it? And I know what you would say, well, he's keeping them alive, right? Um, the reason why authoritarian or monarch governments have been able to work so well is because they figured out how to withhold the important resources from the public, therefore forcing the public to work for it. When you are in a compound with like max hundreds of other people, um, the other hundreds of people are just going to kill you and then enjoy their life in their compound. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Like this idea that Mark Zuckerberg himself is going to be spared from climate doom because he could build himself a pad and that also the people he's going to hire are just going to, you know, accept servitude is crazy. I won't be there when he figures out that it's not going to work, obviously, but I'm I'm going to get a little laugh out of it, more than a little laugh in heaven. And so that's also part of what contributes to climate denialism is that the richest classes who are causing this, people like Taylor Swift, who, oh my God, if you look at how much she's polluted the earth alone just this year, and I mean like from January 1st, 2024 to January 8th, 2024, just flying to see Travis Kelsey, you'd be appalled. Look up that number for 2023 and 2022 and so on and so forth. 
like she is an individual who bears some responsibility for how the earth is degrading you getting on your american airlines boeing flight and praying to god that it doesn't rip apart in the sky you do not and yet we're adopting the language that corporations gave to us because we've essentially been robbed and let's be real we're a little too lazy to figure out our own framework if we understood at a very young age that Yes, it's important to be mindful of how we treat our planet, but ultimately we need to think about how our governments are treating the companies that are killing our earth. And I think it's like less than when you look at the wealth and like the global GDP, like the top 1% of the global GDP is contributing to making climate change worth for the 7 billion, I think 8 billion now other people who live on this planet. One of the great ways that companies dupe the consumer is something um called free market environmentalism. And I'm citing from the BBC article that you can find in the work cited. Free market environmentalism is based on a principle of economics called self-interest, whereby if companies act in their own best interest, their output will benefit the consumer. In the case of free market environmentalism, if companies can win over more companies by acting in a sustainable way, then they will do so, and less responsible companies will be penalized by the market. But free market environmentalism ensues that assumes that consumers are able to tell which companies are acting responsibly and are motivated to choose the most environmental option, which may not always be the best or cheapest. Companies might profit from promoting an environmental image without actually working to reduce their emissions. And that's a big part of greenwashing, which has now become widely understood as a real outcome of free market environmentalism. Another outcome that's not discussed in the article, but that I want to talk about here is that it gives people the illusion of choice and also heightens brand um, loyalty. So people believe that there's a moral choice between going to the BP gas station or the Sunco gas station. In reality, no matter how these gas companies have marketed themselves, the fact that we're fueling our cars with fossil fuels is disastrous. But you feel better because one gas company did that commercial with the ducks and the Dawn dish soap. And so you feel like you're making a moralistic decision. It also increases your loyalty to the brand. And when that brand loyalty may verge on your identity as a person who's an environmentalist, who cares about our planet, and is one of those people who's brave enough to say they want to preserve the earth, then you become you become reluctant to engage with meaningful criticism, or it may be difficult for you to swallow that you're not making any real change at all. I think it's I think it's reasons why this, why people have such a hard time effectuating um, criticism against their brands, particularly in like the outdoorsy community. As someone who likes to hike, I've always laughed a little bit as people who call themselves environmentalists, but then swear brand allegiance to places like Patagonia and Tiva. Because yes, while Patagonia is more sustainable than other brands, really and truly at the rate that it produces goods, it's still harming um, the people that it claims to give back to. But that's a separate topic for another day. The point is, is that this illusion of you know, great companies for the environment and bad companies for the environment lets companies get away with doing very little while making us feel like we're doing a lot just by picking these companies. And in reality, there really isn't a lot of choice on the current market. And again, I think it's important to highlight, and the BBC article does highlight, that the choices we make do harm the earth, even as the individual consumer, just not to the extent that corporations are. 
want to end by saying that, of course, we should all do our part to save the earth. And that happens in a myriad of ways. It's not only learning about recycling, but learning what's actually being done with the recycling in your township. One of the worst days of my life was in college when one of my best friends, Autumn, let me know that the recycling that I had been so passionate about on my college campus was actually just being shipped to China. And because I was on student government, because yes, of course, not only was I on student government for four years, but I was actually class president for my last two, per. Um, and then I took it to student government and then we did like an investigation. And then we found out the school for all it's like greenwashing and like this is one of the best schools for environmental science, blah, blah, blah was essentially taking all of our recyclables and shipping it to China because the small town um, that we were located in just like couldn't handle the amount of recyclable waste that the school was producing. So it's becoming involved with local governance meetings to learn where your recycling is going. Um, it's reducing your consumption. It's reusing the things you already have. There's really no reason why any of your Greek yogurt containers can't also be a container for something else. You don't need to throw it in the trash. You can reuse it as planters. You can reuse it as Tupperware. You can, I don't know, paint it and dress it up like a snowman. The point is, it's just like there's a lot of things you can do with it before it goes to the landfill. You can, if you have the money, um, only shop at brands that are ethically sourced. That's something I do, but I also acknowledge that there's an element of financial privilege in being able to do so. It's, you know, scrounging the secondhand market, which as I talked about at the beginning of the episode, you will get nicer clothes anyway. Like I just got a shipment of new cashmere in. I cannot buy cashmere like that on today's market without paying thousands, but because I got it secondhand, prrr. It's caring a lot about earth. It's trying to reduce your meat consumption. I'm mainly talking to myself when I say this, but like you do not need to eat red meat five times a week and actually it will kill you. Even though hard as it is for me to accept, this podcast is not one of those like nihilistic, there's nothing we can do. There are things we can do, but ultimately the most powerful action that we can take is by putting pressure on our government and completely changing our government to hold these companies accountable. The fact that ExxonMobil can have wreaked 40 years of damage on our planet, that cannot be undone by what you or I, the thousands of other people who listen to this podcast, the the hundreds of thousands, millions TikTok users that are, if every single one of them banded together, no one could literally reduce what Exxon has done in 40 years. We just have to stop these companies. And I think that idea that like these companies really have to be stopped, we have to give a fuck about climate change because I, in the past 10 years, have seen changes that worry me and keep me up at night. I'm from Pittsburgh and we used to get snow, like real snow. And there hasn't been a snowy winter like that since I was in college to the point where my youngest siblings don't even, like they're faint memories for them. I used to go sledding because I lived um, in a house that had a huge hill and all the neighborhood kids would come over and nobody's been able to do that for like the past five or six years because it just hasn't snowed enough. I used to love to ski and while I still love to ski, the opportunities for skiing are pretty slim because it's different to ski on, you know, man-made powder versus actual fresh snow. Like we are watching the planet degrade in front of us. It should not be 70 degrees 
in February. It should not be 50 degrees according to my weather app tomorrow, and it's January 8th, 2024. And what gives me a lot of hope is that during quarantine, we saw temperatures dropping, we saw nature regulating itself. So all of this is possible. An individual action can have a huge change, but at the forefront of everyone's mind should be resisting corporate messaging that tells us that, you know, they're not at fault or they're doing the best that they can. No. And it's also resisting messaging that your consumption of the little things like a Stanley Cup makes you personally culpable for the evil that corporations have wrought on our earth for generations. I understand that you may find the Stanley Cup annoying. Like I said, I would never buy one. But this idea that you have to think piece everything that you hate into broad social issues is false and it distracts from the real evil at hand. So I hope that this is something you think about. I really, really, really hope you read the sources. They're so important and most importantly, they're free. Like you really have no excuse, no paywall not to click on them. So please do, please educate yourself. As always, please reach out to me. I love hearing your feedback about the episodes and I will see you next Monday at 7.30. Love you. Bye.